The title of the message this morning is Faith and Life. Would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. Read with me, beginning in verse 13, Matthew 19, 13. Then children were brought to him, that is Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Let's pray together this morning. Hallelujah, all our ways are known to you, Lord. Because of Jesus, this is not a fearful declaration or confession. Because of Jesus, the forgiveness and grace flowing and the identity that has been exchanged unto us by the grace of Christ, now we can be known by you fully all our ways. We have become holy by Christ's blood. Praise you for that this morning, Lord. Father, you are the Father of life, the Creator of life. And by faith, you have, you have designed that we would engage with you, that we would know you and, and be known by you, by the means of faith. Father, this morning we do pray that you would open up our eyes, that we may see the ways made known to us, that you would open our eyes, that, that you would search our hearts and know us, and that we would see the way everlasting that's in the word of life for us this morning. Well, Father, we pray that you would meet with us in your word. Spirit of God, take the word and teach us and magnify Christ in our midst. During these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis, the very beginning of our Bibles, begins by describing and narrating for us life. It explodes off of the very first page of our Bibles. Life does. All sorts of life, doesn't it? From flowers that yield seed to beasts of the field to to the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. God loves life so much he filled the planet with it and he blessed it. And then he crowned all of life with the the crowning, the apex of his creation, mankind, man and woman. God loves life. That's the beginning of our Bibles and it's really the beginning of our recorded time. But then also, then when we look at our Bibles, we recognize then the the middle of our Bibles or the beginning of the second half, if you will, of our Bibles in Matthew chapter 1. What comes off the page in Matthew chapter 1? It's a genealogy of Jesus. Again, again, like a first page, life explodes off of Uh, the page of our Bible, to begin this new thing that God's doing that we call the New Testament portion of our Bibles. Life again, reminding us life, and then life remade, if you will, through Jesus Christ. And then what, what, how does it all end? What does the last page of our Bible tell us? 
There's a life, it's flourishing like never before. It's, it's everlasting and it's filled with spirit and purity and it's beauty and it's all put back into its place and into its beautiful order. So the very first page of our Bibles in the Old Testament and the very first page of the New Testament and then even the last page, they just cry out, they speak to us, it shouts, our Bible shouts life, life from God. God is the champion of life. Life is just on God's mind. There are two figures in the Bible that, that come to come in their place then following those first parts of their testaments. And one figure in the Old Testament, perhaps one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament, his name is Moses. And three times in the Bible, Moses' life being preserved by his parents is recorded. I'll read for you the very first account of it, and that is in Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid Moses. And it was by faith that Moses, I'm sorry, that it was by faith that Jesus' parents, in Matthew chapter 2, hid Jesus upon hearing and receiving the vision from the angel, the dream. Joseph fled Nazareth, I'm sorry, fled Bethlehem, knowing that Herod's guards and his, his warriors were coming to slay the children. It was by faith that, that Amram and Jochebed both hid Moses, and it was by faith that Joseph and Mary hid Jesus. And both of these situations are, are demonstrations of very less than ideal situations, aren't they? Both are such, so dramatic. In Moses' life, certainly... Uh, a genocide, a, a killing of children, of Jesus, a killing, a slaughter of children, less than ideal situations. But the fact is that children being born into our fallen world are always introduced to a fallen and broken world. And soon, soon children realize that they have become also contributors to the fallenness and brokenness of this world. I remember when Cana was born, and I was thinking through the, all this, and, and uh, now as a parent of a, of a fourth child, I, I thanked God and I praised God for her, but I was so deeply moved as I considered what this world was as and walking along it a little bit further than when we had, had our first three children, I became more cognizant, or I could say I even felt more deeply that this precious little child of ours was was entering into a very, very dark world. And in some ways, I remember lamenting, I remember grieving that she would have to come into such a horrible place, recognizing that there in, in, in the womb, she was in a very innocent and protected state, but soon her eyes would be opened and the eyes of her soul and her spirit would be opened unto all of the realities of the darkness and depravity of this world and soon become cognizant of her own 
brokenness as well. And I remember God meeting with me as a simmered in my heart. He met with me and brought to me the light of truth that seemed to pierce laser-like into this dark, these dark and sorrowful thoughts that I was having. And this truth was this, that she didn't have to live in this dark world in a hopeless way because of Christ. Because we could introduce her to Jesus Christ, because we could show her that, that, in, this, that in this world there could be beauty and peace and even purity in contradiction to all the darkness of this world and that she could know that through Christ, she could live forever beyond the age, beyond the circumstances of the brokenness of this world. And that brought me great joy. That this world didn't have to be the only one she would know. And that I wouldn't have to be her only father. Sometimes when it comes to election seasons, seem, are they even seasons, by the way? It just seems perpetually. But when it comes to the heated parts of election seasons, we hear the idea that a pro-life voter is a single-issue voter, meaning that the voter has chosen to overlook all the other issues in a sort of a pragmatic way um, and to become a choice, uh, to look for the choice candidate for the sake of a single issue, and that would be uh, the issue of pro-life. Maybe that's one way to look at it, but I believe that it's far greater than a single issue because the issue of life stands at a dividing point between two opposing worldviews. Let me say that again, that the issue of life as it pertains to the idea of abortion and pro-life, the issue of life stands at a dividing point between the opposed, two opposing and irreconcilable worldviews. So as believers, faith has got to be at the center of our part to play in promoting life. And so this brings us back into this passage, uh, both passages, Matthew 2 and Exodus chapter 2, where we have the parents of these two children, of Moses and Jesus. It was the faith of Moses' parents. It was the faith that they demonstrated that led them to disobey Pharaoh by hiding Moses. By faith, they risked everything to keep Moses alive. It was their faith that replaced their fear. We cannot know the number or the extent of their fears, which could have included the fear of their neighbors reporting them and turning them in, or the fear of being punished themselves if they had become found out, or the fear of what perhaps even their child would experience as they put Moses in this little ark on the river, what would his life be like? But what is true about this is that they could not overestimate. They could not overestimate what God would do through their act of faith through the life of their child. Odd as it is, Moses was safer in the ark than he was in the arms of his mother. And that is because God was overseeing all of this. God overrules the wicked schemes of evil men. Do you believe this? 
believer this morning, you must settle in this, in the dark age in which we live, the anti-life age that we live, the the pro-death age that we live, and that is that God overrules the wicked schemes of evil men to the extent that you may not even perceive or know or ever even understand how he does this. But God is not intimidated by policies and laws and even by the sword. And this is similar in similar fashion to how Joseph and Mary acted upon hearing the information from the angel that they should flee Bethlehem to seek refuge in the unlikely place of Egypt. Again, Moses-like in Egypt. Faith, obedience, there was God's blessing. Well, let us ask this question. Who knows what God can do or what God will do through children? Who knows what God will do through children? Ministering to families and ministering to single mothers and ministering to single fathers is really an opportunity for all Christians to play a part in. Whether there's children in your home, whether you're a grandparent or, or God has not blessed your home with children, you're living in a single way or in any way, ministering to families and ministering to, to children in this next generation is an opportunity for all Christians to play a part in. And in the case that there's not a child that is directly in your home, that you're directly not responsible, does not diminish God desire, God's desire for all homes to be places where children can thrive. Children are an opportunity for us all to invest in, whether they're present in our home or not. And God's desire is for our homes, to, for your home to be one where life is encouraged to thrive, Take inventory of what God has given you that he may require it of you to personally invest into homes where children's children are. Use what you have to invest in the next generation. How do we do that? There's two ways, I believe, that are helpful and that are scripturally encouraged among all of us. Number one, spiritually engage and invest directly with the next generation in meaningful ways. That is, let every part of your uh, intentionality, every part of your social interaction with children be for the point of spiritual engagement in a meaningful way. Build into this next generation, be involved, and I've always thought of it this way, that all of, all of the Church of Christ and all of the local church is involved in youth ministry in one way or another. Children are not tomorrow's church. They're here today as part of our church. And so all the church is involved in youth ministry in a meaningful and intentional way. And then secondly, spiritually engage with and encourage those who are raising those children. Spiritually engage with and encourage fathers and mothers in the challenges they face in raising their children to fear the Lord. So not only meet the children where they're at and meet them with intentional spiritual engagement, but also meet those who are raising them with great spirit of support with every way of encouragement that you can think of as they are raising children in a very difficult hour of human history. And so 
as children were gathering around and as disciples and those being taught by Christ and in a multitude all around Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. This was not high on the minds of the disciples. That children ought to know who Jesus is. So when Jesus said, let the little children come, he wasn't saying passively watch as they approach Jesus. He wasn't saying, ah, just let them come. That's not at all what he was saying. You see, God loves life. He's the one who created life. God loves, by the way, young life. He invented it. He renews it. God just loves life. 51 years ago, on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court issued its landmark 7-2 decision in Roe versus Wade deciding what a woman, that a woman has the right to end the life of the unborn for the reasons of her own. It would be 15 years later when we had a president named Ronald Reagan And 22 million unborn had already died in those 15 years' time by the means of abortion. President Reagan mourned the shift that had taken place in our country, the moral shift. And he had noticed that it had already begun to take its toll on the morality and the well-being of our country. And so he proclaimed that in America we would always remember the truth that the lives of the unborn matter to God and thus they ought to matter to us. His proclamation that he made is profound, and it renounces the claims that pseudoscience and false claims of imposing morality, legislating, if you will, morality by force of law made by those who would defend abortion. A portion of his proclamation was then made then that 15 years later on January 17th, 1988. President Reagan said this, I also proclaim Sunday, January 17, 1988, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in their homes and places of worship, to give thanks for the gift of life they enjoy, and to reaffirm their commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of every human life. So today in America, it is known as the Sanctity of Human Life Day. It is by precedent and supremely, of course, the Lord's Day. But these two titles for today don't stand in contradiction to one another and, in fact, are profoundly relevant to one another. So let's talk about sanctity if we're going to say it's sanctity of life. Sanctity means the word sacred. That's where we get the word sacred from. It does not mean that man is holy. All men are sinners. We know that and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But when we say that human life is sacred, we're saying that we reflect our origin and we reflect the image of the righteous creator, our God. And so life is sacred, that's why. It is sacred and all life is sacred. All human life is sacred. And if we're going to take a biblical approach to the sanctity of life, that means that we have a responsibility to help out all kinds of life in any type of hardship. It might mean those who are impoverished. That might mean the widow who's struggling by in, in whatever way. Maybe it isn't even just financially. 
It means that we would help the orphans. It means that we would help the elderly. It, it even means we would help immigrants. It, it means that we would help people who are at severely disadvantaged and some who are undeserved, underserved. We know as Christians, really, the, the greatest way to demonstrate the sanctity of life is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, making image bearers into the disciples of Jesus and the followers of Christ. This is the greatest act of love, the greatest act of support. And often, as we know, ministries and, and churches follow after as they see the meeting of the needs of the orphans and the widows and perhaps the impoverished uh, in all these ways. They, they use them as a means of bringing the gospel, knowing this is the true help and supply. And this is some of the initiative that's going on at Warm in our community is, is meeting some people who have desperate needs and knowing that the bread is only the bridge for the gospel message. But this is a, a way and a demonstration of the outworking. This, this demonstrates that, that we agree with God, that we, that we really not only agree with God, but that we're in obedience to God, that we would recognize, support, and invest in the sacredness, the sanctity of human life. And so we work out the love of Christ towards them. But the sanctity of life is rooted in the direct act of our eternal God who assigned great value upon all of mankind. The value placed on any human being on this planet is not a value that has been assigned to them by either parent or a medical professional or non-professional or a politician or a community's at-large thinking, a group think. The value assigned to human life has been assigned there by the one who created that life. God himself has assigned that life and has assigned that life of value because he has stamped his own image on it. Therefore, his image makes that life valuable. Not the image that the life itself bears, maybe the, the uh, resemblance or non-resemblance to either of its parents or maybe even the usefulness or perceived value that that life brings into the life of its parents or its caregivers. But the value of that life has been long ago assigned by the one who created it in the first place. In Genesis 1.26, God determines that he would make man after his own image and after his likeness, he would create them both male and female. And so the image of God in man is what sets mankind apart from all the other parts of God's beautiful creation. We are not merely just one different species on this planet, which, by the way, we are a different species than all other species on this planet. But we are in every way superior to every other species, every other category of animal or plant or anything else created. Not only so, not only are we just in this separate and sacred category, but we are actually worth infinitely more. Because the infinite worth and value of the image of God has been engraved upon us, and it is irremovable. And let's, let's understand that. that. That image of God stamped upon our lives, our spirit, our personality, our personhood, our soul, is irremovable, it's irreplaceable, and it's irrevocable. And so we bear this image of God, every single one of us. While we may not be worthy 
of bearing that image or even worthy of having a relationship of God with God because of our acts of sin and rebellion, that does not diminish our worth. It does not diminish our worth. In fact, the story of Scripture is that God goes to the most extreme lengths to reclaim and redeem us specifically because of the worth that he has assigned to us. Listen to Job 33. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. You realize that even in this moment, as you breathe in and breathe out, your lungs function, that you breathe and breathe, breathe out by the permission of God? The Almighty gives me life. Psalm 100, verse 3, the psalmist exclaims, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah, by the word of the Lord, says, Woe to him who strives with him, who fights against him, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Later, Isaiah, by the word of the Lord, says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. It's important to note that in God's law to protect life, that we understand that the law not only prohibits certain negative behaviors and attitudes, that is, we know that we should not murder, we should not harm someone. But by implication, the, the positive side of things is that, that the law of God actually requires certain positive behaviors and attitudes. Not merely the negative, don't, don't hurt someone. A lot of times we say, I'm not that bad of a person, I'm not a, a serial killer, I'm not a murderer, things like that. For example... In the command of God to not commit adultery, the implication is positively that a person would seek after purity of life, especially morally and sexually, in their obedience and conformity to God's holy standard. The Bible, coming back to murder, speaks of murder and gives a clear instruction that it is an abomination. And no one is to take an innocent person into their hands with the intent to take their life. This is the negative prohibition. And Jesus takes it further and says that no one should even look upon hateful things towards another or else he has even murdered them even if he has not laid a hand on them. And so the negative prohibition against actual and potential murder it implicitly involves a positive mandate to work for the protection and the sustenance of life. It is, none of us would say, hey, I, you know, uh, None of us here this morning is a, is a murderer. But the positive things is, what are we, how are we fulfilling that law and that command to promote life? Certainly you're not taking life, but are you giving and helping flourish and encourage 
and make life thrive. And so the work to protect life was already in the works of God. When he spared Adam and Eve, God's the first protector of life, even amidst the curse of sin, uh, uh, caused them to flee the Garden of Eden and protected them after they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God was protecting their longevity. He was, he was protecting their quality, you could say. And so following the narrative of Scripture, it is clear that God intends for human civilizations to protect and sustain life. God's command, his first command, was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with offspring. This was on God's mind. This is the first words of God to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first command of God as he speaks out to his creations, uh, his creation and to man and woman. This flourishing, this life-giving, the perpetuity of life was God's idea. It was his will. It was his joy. It was his delight. It was his design. And in all of that, then, it was very clearly a mandate, a mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Faith has got to be at the foundation for how we see life. We can see life through the lens of science. We can see life through the lens of what works and what doesn't work. We can see life through cultural lenses but it must be through the eye of faith that we see life. It must be through the eye of biblically informed faith that we, we build our foundation for what life is and how valuable life is. Faith isn't an add-on. It isn't for a separate conversation. It isn't for a separate category of our talking about life. It's not relegated to other areas of our life. Well, there's life and then there's faith. But whether it be Moses' parents or Jesus' parents, faith is central to the work of God in the home, just like Amram and Jochebed, just like Joseph and Mary demonstrated obedience and faith in God's revealed plan to protect life. So too, faith must be the engaging act. It must be the active ingredient in the life of every Christian as we seek to promote and protect life. When Jesus said, let the little children come, he wasn't saying, passively watch as they approach Jesus. Children are to be nurtured in, in a place where they are taken to Jesus' feet. That's what the picture is in Matthew 19. Let them be brought to me. Let them have access to me. Don't stand in the way between children and Jesus. This takes an all-hands-on-deck approach. No adult excluded from this responsibility. 
in the Jewish homes in the Old Testament times. It was the whole tribe. It was the whole clan. It was the whole family's responsibility that the children would know the Torah, that they would know the God of the Torah, that they would worship God. Every single adult played a role in the, in the fostering and in the, in the knowledge and in, if you will call it, even the discipleship of young people in the homes. Every person played a role whether they were an aunt and an uncle, whether they were a neighbor, whether they were even beyond that in the community, everyone had an eye towards the next generation. And Psalm 78 warns the whole community of Israel, do not hide the works of God from your children. The positive of that is freely demonstrate, freely display the great God who keeps his promises so that the children are raised and nurtured in a, in a land and in a way in which they see and fear God from a very young age. And so no adult is excluded from this responsibility. It needs to actively happen in the church. It needs to be warmly cultivated in every Christian home and needs to be spread and supported through good efforts and ministries in the community we live in. In the coming weeks, we'd like to to introduce to you a ministry in our community called Pregnancy Decision Health Center. There's other ministries that are very worthy of attention. This one happens to be very local for us and I think very reachable. We'll be looking at ways in which we can invest and grow in our understanding of what God is doing and maybe there's a, a, a role to play, whether minor or major, in each of our lives that we would support this, this very, I think, a gospel-centered ministry. But this is one way. But there's also a way in which we have alluded to in our uh, lesson this morning, and that is this. If you see children and you see parents, they need all the help they can get today. They need your prayers. They need your love. They need your support They need your rallying. They need your help discipling. They need your encouragement in every way. This is is God's desire. Let's pray.